On today's Water Cooler, the hidden costs of higher education on demand. Is digital technology responsible for the turbulence in politics, or is that just a handy excuse? Jordan Peterson and Robert Menzies compare and contrast. Well, one of the signature policies of the Labour government was to declare higher education on demand, basically removing the criteria that existed for people to enter university and to get loans. James Matias, our executive officer, has been taking a close look at some of the consequences of this. James, we seem to have built up a mountain of debt as a result of this. How come? We have indeed, Nick. It's, uh, it goes back to 2012. One of the key signature policies of the Labour government was opening up vet fee help to any student with no proof they even existed to study whatever course they wanted with whatever provider, and the providers could essentially set the fees. So what we saw in uh, 2012, as the scheme was opened up, 5,300 students enrolled at a cost of $325 million for that year. In 2012, after these reckless changes, there were some 321,000 students enrolled at a cost of $2.9 billion. And we look at it now, the Commonwealth Actuary has come back to the government and said, in actual fact, these loans were so disastrous that we're seeing a growing number of students not being able to repay it. So if you look deeply at the Department of Education's annual report last year, you find an interesting note on page 120, where the Commonwealth Actuary has had a look at the fair value of these loans and the way that they're calculated as bad debts. And essentially, with the stroke of a pen, the Commonwealth Actuary has said to the Department of Education, your books are saying that there's $204 million of bad debts. That actually needs to be $6 billion. That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, the, the thing is that these are contingent loans, aren't they? So you only have to repay them if your salary reaches over a certain limit. And and what they're saying is there's a, people have undertaken higher education, there's a good chance they will never, ever reach the salary limit or they might not repay in other ways. They might go overseas. That's right. So we in, in the vet sector, we've got a completion rate of about 61%. And then of those people that complete, the average wage is about 44000 now, the income threshold at the moment before you start paying a single cent back is 54000 So what the government has done, um, and it's a good step towards making uh, inroads towards this, it's they've actually lowered the threshold so that next year somebody earning $44,000 a year pays on average about $9 a week back towards their loan. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but it's a start towards getting these loans repaid. We, I mean, we've looked at this in um, in universities, the, the no-complete rate, which is rising. And uh, a report by the Grattan Institute earlier this year estimated that the average debt of somebody who doesn't complete a degree is around $12,000. So they've gone through all that time and trouble. Uh, they've come out presumably feeling disappointed with education, perhaps with themselves, and they've still got that debt. And you're saying that with VET... With the trade sector, that's even higher. So the students who began in 2007, uh, by 2015, 73% of them had completed their degree. About three quarters. Yep. So, and the students that started in 2010, only 66% of those people had completed their degree by 2016. That's concerning when you think about a degree being only three years. Well, correlation is not causation, but it would seem to be... Uh, you know, the fact that that occurred at the time they opened up higher education for anybody, you'd think there was a link. That's right. What seems to be what they're trying to deny here is that there's inherent uh, intelligence or inherent skills 
in in some people that there isn't in others that that all people are somehow equal. I mean, you wouldn't do that in uh, for say the Australian Institute of Sport, would you? I mean, you wouldn't say, you know, James, do you want to have a go at uh, swimming the two hundred meter uh, freestyle in the next Olympics? You can. I mean, why should we ban you? <laughs> That's right. By by virtue of saying um, anybody can study anything um, with anybody with anyone is not achieving good outcomes for our students, for our country. It's like a sort of devaluation of education, isn't it? And I wonder what this is doing for uh, people of uh, your age, millennials, if you like. It's something that you simply have to do. And I reject that. I reject that every person has to go off to university when you actually have a look on the other side, the trade side. The concerning part about the current state of play with apprenticeships is that this country has 253,000 fewer apprentices today than it had in 2012. And uh, a trade apprenticeship is seen through schools, seen through the prism of um, career advisors, as not being a worthy skill to learn, not being a worthy career to have. But in actual fact, you find that tradies have a very rewarding career. They earn a lot of money, um, more so sometimes than lawyers. And in actual fact, 92% of people who complete their trade apprenticeship go straight into employment within three months of completing that. Well, thank you, James. Back in 2009, a little-known European Member of Parliament at the time, Daniel Hannan, stood up in the European Parliament and uh, gave a speech in reply to the UK Labour Prime Minister, Gordon Brown. It was just brilliantly done. Have a listen to some of it. Now, it's not that you're not apologising. Like everyone else, I've long accepted that you're pathologically incapable of accepting responsibility for these things. It's that you're carrying on willfully worsening our situation, wantonly spending what little we have left. Last year, in the last 12 months, 100,000 private sector jobs have been lost, and yet you created 30,000 public sector jobs. Prime Minister, you cannot carry on forever squeezing the productive bit of the economy in order to fund an unprecedented engorgement of the unproductive bit. You cannot spend your way out of recession or borrow your way out of debt. And when you repeat in that wooden and perfunctory way that our situation is better than others, that we're well placed to weather the storm, I have to tell you, you sound like a Brezhnev-era apparatchik giving the party line. You know, and we know, and you know that we know that it's nonsense. Everyone knows that Britain is worse off than any other country as we go into these hard times. The IMF has said so. The European Commission has said so. The markets have said so, which is why our currency has devalued by 30%. And soon the voters too will get their chance to say so. They can see what the markets have already seen, that you are the devalued Prime Minister of a devalued government. Fred Paul, our communications director, is with us. Fred, you could listen to that time and time again, couldn't well, you? Well, in, in, in fact, I have a couple of times this week, Nick. It's a, it's a magnificent bit of work. I love the, uh, the, the ending phrase, a, uh, a devalued prime minister of a devalued nation. Uh, you've got to watch it on video. The look on, uh, on Daniel's face at the time is, is pure indignation. Well, after the turbulent week in politics, the fifth change of Prime Minister in 10 years, bringing us up to speed, I see, with Italy. I spoke to Daniel Hannan by Skype from Brussels, and he thought that social media had a big part to play in it. If you look at, even now, at parliaments around the world in almost any democracy, you will find a lot of points of view that are fairly widespread, but that have almost no representation in the parliament. 
where, where there are obvious mismatches between public opinion and, and politicians. So uh, a classic example on the right would be the view that there should be close to zero immigration. I mean, that's not my view, but it is clearly an underrepresented view in most Western parliaments. Uh, there is also a very widespread but underrepresented view on the left that you should have punitive confiscatory taxation for wealthy people. Uh, again, not my view, but if I'm honest, it is a point of view that is underrepresented in most parliaments. And I think what, one of the, the things that changed when uh, people no longer had to get their news from a number of, if you like, filtered approved sources is that they discovered that actually these turned out to be much more widespread positions than had previously appeared to be the case. And it wasn't long before on both sides, there were Donald Trump's and Jeremy Corbyn's who were prepared to benefit from that sense and, and to offer uh, themselves to election articulating those points of view. So if you're if you're a, a, a liberal uh, as we are and, and and you are philosophically if not uh, if not uh, by party affiliation this should be a wonderful thing shouldn't it a great breakthrough for for participatory democracy isn't it? well it, it definitely has upsides and you know the removal of these uh, of these filters generally is good news for people who are right of centre whether whether of conservative or libertarian. I mean, when everybody got the news from their from the BBC, you know, there were a number of soft left assumptions, as, as you'll remember, that just infused it. It was very rarely partisan, but it just took for granted that, you know, Israel was bad, immigration was good, austerity was was bad, Europe was good. And so the removal of those filters is is good. In fact, I remember um, uh, when I. The first time I did something that got a lot of coverage online, which was a, a speech I made attacking Gordon Brown in the European Parliament uh, about eight years ago, there was a very tetchy uh, article in the New Statesman by the former editor of the New Statesman, uh, who said the fact that this speech has got so many millions of views just goes to show what we knew all along, that the Internet lacks all quality control. And, and that was the authentic voice of the angry left losing their monopoly. Oh, my God, they've taken the filters off. All sorts of things can be said now. So in general, you know, I think there are great opportunities here. But I think we should be honest and say that, you know, it, it is not only people like you and me who are seizing the opportunities. I think a lot of people on the aggressive left have also seized the, the opportunities. And I think we've seen that in a number of European countries. Yeah. And, and also, I think you see a reaction, don't you, from the establishment, if you like. On the one hand, it seems to me they're bewildered by these outcomes. But uh, on the other hand, uh, they get quite angry. They, they don't like the idea that uh, that monopoly is being broken. Uh, right. And who would, right? Everyone is a monopolist if they can get away with it. I mean, I, I think the most powerful tool that they used to have uh, and when I say the establishment here I mean it in its, its widest sense the, the journalists, the politicians, the civil servants, they had the great ability to make things go away by ignoring them if a story didn't fit and the, the newspapers and TV didn't cover it that was it, there was no alternative way for people to, to come together and organise and if I had to put my finger on the moment that that changed, or certainly the moment that I noticed it changing, it was, do you remember the leaked climate gate emails from the University of East Anglia, the hide the decline emails? Yes, yes. Mm. You know, the people that were supposed to be setting the UN definition, effectively massaging the figures. Uh, 
Now, this came out through blogs in the early 2000s, and there was it was particularly my then Telegraph colleague, uh, blogging colleague, James Dellingpole, and he had the technique day after day of naming and shaming all of the environment correspondents in all the main newspapers. This is what the Times environment correspondent thinks is a bigger story today. This is what the guy in the Independent thinks is a bigger story. And in the end, of course, they had to, they were shamed into covering the story. And I remember thinking then, this has changed everything. You can no longer repress a story simply by looking the other way. And that's got to be a good thing if you take the view that pluralism is a good thing. Because, you know, I mean, the, 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 the easy, the facile and slightly fatuous thing that everyone says is, I want impartial news. Well, you know, guys, I hate to break it to you, but there is no such thing as impartial news. Whatever one person thinks is impartial, the next person thinks is biased. You can certainly want accurate news, but there is no one will ever agree on what is impartial news. So the best you can hope for is to have a cacophony of competing news outlets, a, 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 a great din of clashing different interpretations. And out of that din, you can discern something close to the truth because you'll have heard all of the different cases being argued somewhere. That was Daniel Hannan speaking from Brussels. Well, with me is Fred Paul, our communications director. Fred, I've always been a bit sceptical of this idea that, that we can blame the media for politicians' failure. After all, they, they should maybe just do their job a little bit better. What do you think? Exactly. I mean, the, the, the focus of that particular complaint has changed from the traditional media now to social media. But I think Daniel makes some very good points uh, in, in his conversation with you, uh, specifically about the fact that there are certain, there are many demographics these days in the age of professional politics that simply are no longer represented in Parliament anymore, and, and social media has stepped up to kind of amplify their concerns. I mean, there was a good example here a couple of years ago in New South Wales with greyhound racing. I think before the advent of social media, the, the government might have got away with that greyhound racing ban. You know, I mean, they used to get away with stuff. If, if they were able to get the traditional media on side, then they could uh, sweep all sorts of controversies under the carpet, but not so anymore. Social media has a life of its own. Yeah, and, and all age groups. I mean, the, in, in the country, I know that the uh, Facebook in particular has been very influential in bringing communities together on issues like, uh, for instance, uh, uh, fracking on, on gas extraction, the shut the gate movement. Now, this may not be something we agree with, but you have to acknowledge it is at least people power. Fred, you and I, though, I mean, we go back a long way, don't we? Far, probably far too long to, uh, what, uh, 19, uh, 1990? 1990, that's right, in Adelaide, at the Advertiser. Yes, we were both working on the Advertiser. We had uh, a long experience in, in traditional media. It, it, I, I think it has changed substantially, hasn't it? The idea that, I mean, when we worked in, in newspapers, there was a a strict change of command. You couldn't just put something up. Everything had to be filtered by the editor and, and usually for good reason. That's right, yeah. Editorial control was a major thing because publications lived and died by their reputation, whereas uh, on social media it's it's a free-for-all. But when you said a minute ago that, that social media, things like Facebook, have has uh, empowered sort of specialist groups to get a voice... The, uh, the, the flip side of that is that society is far more fractured now 
you know, but we are now getting our information from uh, people with whom we agree. And uh, the, the ability for people to disagree with each other these days is extremely low. And I think that's a sad thing. Yeah, that silo effect is very noticeable, isn't it? But uh, maybe this is just the old-fashioned journalist in me, but I worry about the quality of the news. And I think we've seen an example this week. Uh, there are many examples of this, but uh, the, the, the so-called scandal of Peter Dutton, you know, it sort of blew up on social media, but mainstream media picks it up and runs with it without, to me, very little substance to the complaint. It's, a ta- it's the tail wagging the dog, clearly. But I, I, in some ways, this development is actually quite reassuring because after a, a dramatic uh, change of leadership, change of prime minister for the nation. We are back now to reporting political trivia, which is uh, which is a bit of a relief. I mean, uh, how 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 much more smoothly can a transition of power be? Yeah, and it does seem to me to be trivia. I mean, first of all, you've got to suspect the timing, haven't you? You know, it's it's payback, it's Labor trying to trying to create dissension in the ranks. But when you look at the the, the substance of it, I understand that the the uh, def- the the immigration minister is called upon to make personal decisions like this um, thousands of times a year, and he makes hundreds of decisions um, because, in the end, we can't trust the bureaucracy to make these decisions. They make crazy decisions. They do indeed. I mean, Man Monis is a good example of of the bureaucracy being completely irresponsible. I mean, most of the reporting of the the French au pair story insinuates that Dutton let that young woman in so she could work. It's not, that's, not the, that's not the case. He let her in on the condition that she did not work. He actually did his job. Yeah, I think the real story here is the, the, the bureaucratic, ridiculous decision, isn't it? So here she is. She's, an, she's come in. She's a friend of the family from France. She's working, for, well, not working for them. She's looking after their children. Uh, they're giving her accommodation. You know, you might do that, say, to your, you know, your, 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 your great aunt or something. You might do the same thing. Uh, but uh, because somebody says she's, uh, she's working because she's getting accommodation in return for, for helping out, you know, I mean, w- what happens if, a, if somebody comes to stay in your house and uh, a friend comes to stay and they help with the dish, dishwashing? I mean, <laughs> is, is that working or what? I mean, but it's, it's clearly one of those crazy bureaucratic decisions and they're going to put her in detention and then deport her, even though she hasn't overstayed her visa. The minister's stepped in uh, to, to, you know, to, to make a decision for common sense uh, and suddenly this is a scandal. It, this is actually a case of red tape. I mean, she's a friend of the family. She's allowed to kind of do them favours. It's not She's not undermining Australian employment, you know. So uh, if, if our new Prime Minister were to leap into the office and say, there's too much red tape in this country, I'm going to cut a tonne of it, I think he'd be very, a very popular man. I think that the Labor is, is struggling so far, early days yet, of course, but to get their line and length on Scott Morrison and his team. They, they, they had a line on Malcolm Turnbull, that he was a rich banker and, and therefore they could attack him on that, uh, so they thought. But Scott Morrison, seems to me that many of the things the left is going for him on, it's like, almost like it's a puff piece for him, isn't it? So the, the ABC this week had a go at him because he was religious, because he went to church. I would have thought that's quite reassuring in a prime minister. That's right. I mean, this is, again, to compare it to the US, the the media in the US has not learnt the lesson of 2016. They continue to vilify Donald Trump um, in ways that only encourage his supporters. And for the ABC and the various members of the so-called love media um, to be uh, portraying Scott Morrison as somehow deficient in character because he's Christian 
Well, I mean, if, if you wanted to uh, boost ScoMo's popularity, that's definitely one way of doing it. And I liked his response, turn the other cheek. I mean, that's a great, <laughs> great, great Christian virtue. I liked, I liked him in the footy jumper the other day too. I think when, uh, for, all, uh, for all our, f- our previous Prime Minister's qualities, I think the, uh, the turning point, in the, the point of no return in his Prime Ministership was when he sat down and ate a, ate a meat pie with a knife and fork. I don't think Australians take to that kind of behaviour very well and I can't imagine Scott Morrison ever doing that. No, and I heard the, at a, a Labor, at a, sorry, Liberal Party branch meeting in the, in the western suburbs, uh, the former Prime Minister turned up and somebody said, are they cufflinks? We don't wear cufflinks. <laughs> uh, Speaking of which, how did you go in Cessnock? You were in Cessnock last night. Oh, yeah. yeah I was invited to the Cessnock branch. Uh, it was terrific. It was out in the Hunter Valley in, in, uh, in, in a winery, and uh, we, we had a great night. And they wanted to know about coal. I was a little bit nervous because there I was in, in the Hunter Valley. I thought they'd know more about coal than I did. But, um, uh, yeah, well, we had a very interesting discussion about the role of coal and um, a lot of agreement. But the one thing that came up of several questions afterwards, they were very interested to know what I, my views on nuclear power. Uh, and we're going to be doing more on this, I think, in coming weeks. But nuclear power seems to be, um, you know, to many people, it just seems to be the convenient, you know, the convenient way of... Of, of of producing reliable electricity cheaply and safely, actually. I mean, it's, that's, that's the thing. I mean, more people die from coal mining than die from nuclear power station uh, accidents. So, this is a constant theme we're getting, Nick. We're, we're getting this from all around the country now, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And, and uh, it was, I, I think, uh, my memory's correct, I think towards the end of the Howard government in 2007, this idea floated around and uh, but you know uh, then suddenly the the government ran from it from a million miles because you know it was always the question would you like one of these in your backyard but look I think something's changed dramatically since then first of all the electricity question and also the technology's moved on I mean nuclear powers is now produced by very small units I gather not much bigger than your average garage they're water cooled not not sorry they're air cooled not water cooled much safer much smaller scale so It'll be interesting. What, I mean, anecdotally, what what do you, what's your impression? Do you think people are ready for this discussion? Oh, I think they are. I mean, like I said, we are getting this message everywhere we go these days. Back to Scott Morrison. I think uh, you know we have seen him uh, this week uh, being uh, very direct in uh, communicating. I, I was reminded when I read back into some of the biographies of him that, of course, he was he did have a background in marketing at Tourism Australia. Uh, when he was uh, in charge when they produced this controversial advertisement. We got the ruse off the green. And Bill's on his way down to open the front gate. The taxi's waiting. And dinner's about to be served. We turned on the light. Well, I think that's pretty good. I mean, I, I wonder, Fred, what do you think? Do you think the Liberal Party should take up that slogan to its lost voters? Where, where the bloody hell are you? Yeah, what is Laura up to these days, anyway? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe she wants wants a job uh, heading up the Labor Party ads. I mean, yeah. sorry, the Liberal Party, Liberal Party ads. Party ads, yes. But um, I, I, I'm still ambivalent about that campaign. Uh, apparently, it was fatally flawed because it. The, the undertone was it was that uh, Australia didn't have any tourists at the time. Australians always enjoyed a, a, a brilliant 
tourism industry. Um, but I always thought the the kind of uh, the the mood and attitude of it was spot on. And if you know if ScoMo's behind it, then it, I think it reveals a very keen understanding of the Australian character, the Australian attitudes to its own country and sense of humour and, 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 and lack of seriousness. Absolutely, yeah. Well, back to that theme of, of social media. Back in 1942, the new media, or the relatively new media, was radio, and uh, Robert Menzies used it to tremendous effect with his forgotten people speeches broadcast on the Macquarie Radio Network, uh, which accused, you know achieved huge audiences, a million, million plus in a country uh, of uh, probably eight million in the population. Um, nowadays, of course, uh, we have the same sort of media successes uh, like uh, like Jordan Peterson, who, who uh, you know just gone enormously successful with with the young audiences, and like Robert Menzies, he's politically incorrect. Robert Menzies was the politically incorrect politician of his day. Yes, I, I met a young bloke called Sean Jacobs who uh, has a piece up on The Spectator at the moment uh, explaining reasons why uh, to for young people to admire uh, Robert Menzies and he's also just written, written a book which is a kind of a self-help book based on his own life called Winners Don't Cheat. Um, the thing about Sean Jacobs and his kind in Australia, I think this is quite common to, to people, to young uh, classical liberals in Australia, is that they're not like the alt-right. We had Lauren Southern here recently and she caused quite a stir. I don't think local classical, young classical liberals are like that. They are What they're seeking is not confrontation with who they deem to be the uh, the enemy on the left. Really, they're looking for for philosophical answers to the big questions of today and they are increasingly finding them not only in people like Jordan Peterson but they're looking into the past and finding it as Sean Jacobs has in the message from Robert Menzies and so I asked him I I rang him and I said uh, so was Robert Menzies the Jordan Peterson of his time this is what he said I think when you go back and you read Menzies you see that he placed above all the highest premium on being an individual and um I meant you mentioned my book at the start of the show there, Winners Don't Cheat. And um, I had a really slow start out of high school. And it was one of the key motivators for writing that book was turning myself around and able being able to build skills, look at myself as an individual, set goals, um, build strong habits, look at role models. But it all came back to placing this really high premium on being an individual. And I remember in my first years of working down in Canberra before as a security specialist, I spent some time with the Commonwealth Government, I came across this guy, uh, Robert Menzies, and I remember reading a lot of his stuff and thinking, wow, this guy's speaking directly to me. And one of the things that really jumped out to me in all of his stuff was the famous quote where he said, the desire to think, create, accept risks, rewards, and the prospect of adventure are all individual matters. There's no government department that can create these things. And, you know, I think he wrote that, or he echoed that in his Forgotten People. Um, that's from that's from the importance of cheerfulness, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. And look, that's back in the, you know, in the 1940s. But this is something that I think that just completely jumps out and appealed to me, you know, being a young guy like myself, um, you know, in, in back in 2016 um, when I was down in Canberra. So, yeah, it's just that 
that's one of the things I think I, I, that really appeals to me about Menzies is he places this strong premium on being an individual and not seeing yourself as part of, of a group. And I think that's just a really strong message to be um, absorbing or to be put out today. It's essentially the Lockean worldview, really, isn't it? That's right. Look, I think, and, um, you know, I think these ideas are definitely coming back into vogue now, um, you know, especially if you look at the landscape that we're in at the moment where, um, you know, identity politics, safe spaces, cry closets, um, you know, even emotional support animals and these sorts of things. There's a lot of coddling or smothering now where I think that sort of premium on the individual is under a little bit of pressure. A lot of things, I think, are just being able to uncover elements of the past, which are, you know, positives. And um, Manzi's definitely is a great example and Locke and stuff like that. Just on that note, though, it's very interesting. I think, um, you know, you look, for example, at a lot of the progressive politics and, you know, a generation ago, a lot of the people who have found, as you mentioned, who would have been Greens back then were very, um, I guess, antithetical towards the state or state intervention. But a lot of the progressive politics you're seeing now, a lot of the green left are actually inviting more state intervention. So you're right, things have flipped over a little bit and become a lot more kind of mixed. That's right. So one of the leading advocates for our side of the debate is of course, Jordan Peterson. And I believe you have a bit of a theory that uh, Robert Menzies was the Jordan Peterson of his time. Can you elaborate on that? (laughs) Yeah, look, I think, yeah, look, it's an interesting one, but I have sort of written a little bit about this. But what I mentioned before about uncovering Menzies and placing a premium on the individual, um, you know, you look at Jordan Peterson, for example, and one of the key messages he has is to tidy up your room before going out and rallying against Western civilization. Um, yep. You know, getting yourself together and transcending your stuff, your suffering. He says it's the oldest story of mankind. And I think his other lesson as well is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. And you really scratch around and you find that Menzies was talking about a lot of these things, um, whether it's, you know, his his examples by being resilient and learning from failure. But also, as I mentioned, just coming back to that desire to think, create and accept risks and have that individual self-agency but and that, that element of character and duty, that a lot of what Menzies spoke about is really getting espoused a lot by Jordan Peterson. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, Jordan puts it well, and in a modern context, one of the the thing that everyone comes back to in the Forgotten People speech is the the, the sort of technical definition that Menzies gives to the Forgotten People, which he says are salary earners, shopkeepers, skilled artisans, professional men and women, farmers, and so on. And I, I think that, I mean, that's a very uh, prosaic description of the people he's referring to. But there's another part in that Forgotten People speech, and I'm, I'm springing this on you, I'm hoping you're familiar with it, where he describes the homes where these people live and their relationship to art, which is the, the you know, that this is the area that us conservatives are meant to be not very good at. But Menzies' description of it, to me, is extremely poetic. He, he calls calls these people free, frugal people to whom the margin above bare living means a chance to reach out a little towards that heaven which is just beyond our grasp. Now, I think that's fantastic. I mean, that's Peterson is, a, is, is in his element very poetic as well. Do you think um, Menzies is, the, the, the poetry of Menzies 
uh, speeches is a little underappreciated? Yeah, look, I think so. And I like that point on art. I do remember that, um, you know, that, that idea of expression, that idea of, you know, about, I guess, some of the complaints of the human condition as well that I think that Peterson talks a lot about as well. Um, you know, one of the things I think that makes Peterson so appealing that I think ties a little bit to this the point that you're mentioning um, is this idea that the starting point in life isn't, you know, Peterson talks a lot about how the starting point in life is not um, this sort of fuzzy feel-good optimism that you're not supposed to feel good all the time, but the, the world is actually full of malevolence and a lot of, and full of suffering. So the idea, the whole point is just trying to in, inspire yourself to just get to create things that are little, just a little bit better. And I think that's that, you know, that's a perfect fit for that quote that you just mentioned about just that touch or that shred. It is indeed, yes. In fact, it, it makes me realise um, Menzies was speaking in the midst of a war and talking at talking about essentially how how positive life can be. Peterson is talking during a period of prolonged peace and prosperity and he often says that life is nothing but misery punctuated occasionally with moments of satisfaction or joy. So, I mean, um, you know, you'd think that they'd be uh, the other way around, but there you go. Yeah, sure, that's right. And I think it's interesting too that what you know, Menzies placed, he, he, you read his stuff again, and I'm a huge fan, but you look back and what he admired most in a lot of people were actually a lot of people who were um, the British, just everyday British citizens who were under the blitz. And he said that he was really moved by their stoicism in the middle of it. And then you'd actually find in that not a lot of chest thumping, but a lot of humility. So he said that if, you'd, if you were to go out and look at them, you'd find few heroics, oddly little black rage, no imitation intellectualism and no showing off. And I think that's just a really good example of humility under siege, um, you know, at, a war, at wartime, like you say, when Menzies were look, was looking at these values. But I think as well, to just put it into the modern context, we're certainly not in the same realm as, you know, 1942. But, um, you know, you, you are seeing these things that are a threat to liberty. So if, if it's stifling correctness, um, identity politics, and the sort of grievance industry that we're now enduring or experiencing. The reason why these things are so volatile and so seismic is because they do share that threat to individual liberty. And um, I think that's sort of what, you know, Menzies and Peters, Menzies was talking about at that time, which is staring down tyranny. Um, but then today, although we're not staring down tyranny, we're looking at a different kind of curve on liberties that that's what Peterson's appealing to. You know, a lot of people, you know, like I mentioned at the start, I, I modelled a bit of my turnaround um, coming out of school and on, on Menzies, even though I didn't know who he was at the time. But um, a lot of people wouldn't know who Menzies are, who are a lot of Peterson followers. Um, but then I think they instinctively or indirectly are absorbing Menzies' message and the fact that a lot of young people want to build skills want to be resilient and also, you know, anti-fragile and just be better equipped to um, prosper in the modern world, which is what Menzies really talked about. So while they might not know who Menzies is, they're certainly, I think, striving towards some of the values that he talked about. Yeah. Let's talk about your book, mate. What's the, what's the thesis of your book? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, Fred, I had a really slow start out of high school and I was able to turn that slow start into working for the Australian aid program in the South Pacific. 
um, working for the UN in Port Moresby in PNG, which is where I was born and where my mother's from. And then, as I mentioned too, uh, working for a few years for the National Security Advisor in Canberra. But, you know, I took 11 attempts to get into uni. Uh, so certainly was a bit of a slow starter. Yeah. And a lot of my book is just really how to really plug that gap about not having the skills and experience compared to where you want to go. Um, you know, coming from a position of thinking a lot about your rights at the time and not so much your responsibilities. And then just sort of knowing that you've got a sense of character or an element of character inside of you, but it hasn't quite been tested or refined yet. So I talk a lot about in the book, education versus employability, the importance of goal setting, building skills, finding the right role models, uh, becoming a better writer, and then just matching a lot of lessons from you know academics through to sports stars and philosophers, economists and entertainers, and yeah, look, even former prime ministers like Robert Menzies. <laughs> Where does cheating come into it, or not cheating, I should say? Yeah, I think like I, I the title of the book appealed to me um, because there's another book called Winners Never Cheat um, by a guy called John Huntsman Senior. His son is now the U.S. ambassador. Uh, to Russia, and he was a former uh, Republican presidential uh, nominee candidate. But in that book that I read a few years ago, he talks a lot about these core values of, of thrift, of enterprise, of courage, and how business and commerce exists as an exercise in not in greed and exploitation, but really as a place that where individuality and, and good values intersect with you know, capitalism and, and free markets. And that really jumped out to me as a good title, just about being honest, about being straight up and down, yes, but then also being honest to yourself and then working really hard on yourself to um, build skills and cultivate a career and organise your own landscape. Well, brings us back to Peterson. You know, he says, don't lie, or at least, at least, what is it? Um, at least always tell the truth, I think it is. Um, yeah, that's right. Some advice that would get you into hot water a lot of the time. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Sean. Um, your book, uh, Winners Don't Cheat, is available at Connor Court. And uh, like I said, you've, uh, you've got a piece about the, uh, our uh, figurehead, Sir Robert Menzies, up on The Spectator at the moment. Sean, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for your time. Well, great, great interview. I wonder whether Jordan Peterson's maybe our next Prime Minister, maybe your government for 19 successful years. Who knows? <laughs> thanks very much um, uh, for joining us, Fred. Thanks, James. Um, and thanks to everybody who's listened to this and, and be born with us with patience. Uh, I believe, Fred, uh, we think we may be on the verge of getting on to uh, Apple iTunes. Just about on the, on the verge of cracking it, but we are on SoundCloud. So the, the, uh, the links to all our podcasts are up on our website now. You can get them on SoundCloud and pretty soon you'll be able to subscribe to us on, uh, on iTunes. Thanks, Fred. Bye.